Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. One of the lessons is, if you change the world, you're going to change the law, <laughs> and you're going to have to live with the law that emerges. And you therefore have to think not only about your responsibility under the law today, but you have to think about where the law is going and where your responsibility is going. Brad Smith has been at Microsoft for nearly 25 years, and he's been the top lawyer there for 15 he now also holds the title of president, running corporate affairs and working alongside CEO Satya Nadella. Brad led Microsoft's legal defense against David Boies in the U.S. government a generation ago. You might have heard of that infamous antitrust case against Microsoft. Today, he's fighting for Microsoft's right to shield certain customer data in the cloud. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and then, if you like it, tell a friend. Brad and I did a panel together at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Colorado recently about the global threat from hackers. After that, we sat down and I pushed record and we had a conversation for Fort Knox. Three things you're going to hear from Brad Smith now, how his upbringing shaped his view of the world, how as a young lawyer he used technology to advance his career, and how to learn from massive upheaval, like the government's antitrust case against Microsoft 20 years ago, which I think it's fair to say changed Microsoft, the tech industry, and Brad Smith's career forever. And that's where the title of this episode comes from. If you change the world, you change the law. Two decades later, Brad has a take on Microsoft and the case that I just find profound. And perhaps it's a near prophetic warning to today's other world changers, including Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Google. And there's some advice in there I think you and I can apply to. Here's Brad. What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I always thought when I was growing up that I either wanted to be a lawyer or a politician or a diplomat, and I sometimes think that I ended up a bit as all three. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in northeastern Wisconsin uh, in uh, a town called Appleton. It uh, had about 70,000 people uh, growing up, uh, and I sometimes say I, uh, I grew up in a middle-income family with uh, the name that was the most common in the middle of the phone book, and I lived in the middle of the country. So, uh, you know, I was very fortunate. Had a wonderful family and you know, went to great public schools. Who are the role models? Why do you want to be have such a public impact? Well, I, I think I had you know, wonderful parents that were great role models. Um, were they political? No, but they were very community-minded. Hmm. We were always raised to focus not on ourselves but on others. 
Um, we were told not to talk about ourselves, but to ask questions of other people and learn from them, and above all, try to be helpful whenever we could. And I think all of that was just fundamental in you know, how I was raised. And then I was incredibly uh, fortunate to then have some teachers, as I think many people uh, are fortunate to have. Mm -hmm. uh, and they clearly impacted my life. Uh, you know, one really taught me how to write, and the other uh, was a history professor, a history teacher in high school, who uh, inspired a lot of curiosity about, about the what? world. Um, well, he taught two courses. One was called Diplomatic History and one was called Constitutional History. Huh. You put those two together and you sort of cover uh, the history of a lot of issues that matter to the world. What do you get in Diplomatic History? Well, what you really learned about was um, how the world fell apart and uh, ended up in World War I, hmm. how the world tried to put itself back together after World War I but failed. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then what the world tried to do after World War II uh, to avoid that happening again. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from those sets of questions. So there's a legal poll and there's a political poll. Which, one is, which one is winning uh, on, on high school brat? Well, uh, on, on uh, high school Brad, it was probably the, the political uh, pull by far. And we see that in what? Are you running for class office? Are you active in the community? What, how, how do we see political Brad taking shape as a teenager? Well, I was very lucky when I was in high school. Uh, I, you know, for my junior and senior year, for two years, I was the student body president. My senior year, I was the editor of the uh, student newspaper. I was on the debate team. I just Wait, You were student body things. president and editor of the paper at the same time? <laughs> yes. You might point out that it didn't necessarily have the right division <laughs> between you know government and the press that should have been there. But I was, was actually student body president and editor of the opinion pages at the same time. <laughs> you were close. Probably worse. I got fired as editor of the opinion pages eventually. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I unless I had fired myself, uh, we were okay. It Did, didn't mean I necessarily had great judgment all the time, though. So you had kind of monopoly power over uh, that little uh, yeah, Microsoft it, joke there. Yeah, I, I, I get it. <laughs> College brought culture shock. The East Coast isn't like the Midwest. Freshman Brad didn't fit in. Uh, I uh, went from northeastern Wisconsin to Princeton. Uh, and uh, it was a big change. It was a big cultural change uh, for me. The whole uh, first year, my freshman year, I wasn't at all certain that I belonged, um, but because I found my place. Um, that whole Midwest nice thing, not necessarily. It was part Midwest, East Coast. Um, you know, it was. It, 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 I'm a trustee at Princeton now. One of the things I love about Princeton today is how diverse it is. Hmm. Um, pretty much even between men and women. People come from all around the country, from all kinds of backgrounds. So many more people from so many ethnicities, races, economic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. That was not the case nearly uh, to the same degree in the fall of 1977 when I arrived. Women were a third of the student body, but only a third. Um, over half the student body came from private schools, prep schools. Um, that wasn't me. Hmm. Uh, and so you come from a public school. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, Appleton West High School. Um, you know, trained not to talk about yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah and so it, it it took some time. But of course, what I think so many of us have learned. Uh, 
is that that's not unusual. Mm-hmm. You know, kids get to, to college, you, the freshman year, you sort of have to find your place. And I was incredibly lucky. I found my place academically and, and socially, and I got involved in campus politics. So uh, where was your place? Again. Well, you know, it, uh, I, I majored in international relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and my passion was campus politics. Uh, so I was very much in the middle of that for, as it turned out, virtually all four years that I was there. After finding his place at Princeton through campus politics, Brad went into law school at Columbia in New York. His horizons growing broader, he began work on an issue that still resonates with him today. Well, um, you know, as a law student in an immigration law clinic, what you really learned was how immigration law works, and what you really learned was how to work with a client who is, by definition, an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, I was very interested in these issues. When I was at Princeton, I wrote my senior thesis on international refugee law. So that's part of what drew me to this topic in the first place. Um, but I also just found that the experience of working with an individual um, whose ability to stay in the United States was dependent on the work that I would do as a law student or in the future as a lawyer was extraordinarily rewarding. It was extraordinarily important. Uh, you know, and uh, especially when I uh, had the opportunity to do more work and learn more about refugee issues, I came to appreciate that these were life and death issues potentially to people. Any specific stories from back then that stayed with you? Well, you know, the, one of the things that I had the opportunity to work on when I became a lawyer was pro bono work mm-hmm. in the immigration space. Uh, and uh, I ended up with this rather remarkable case. Uh, it was a question that no court had ever been asked to decide. Hmm. It involved an individual who had been a, a soldier, a sergeant in the army in Ghana, uh, and had participated in a coup attempt. And then he later claimed asylum in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the specific question was whether an individual who had participated in in an effort to overthrow a government by force could ever qualify as a refugee under U.S. and international law. Uh, And I suddenly found myself, you know, two years out of law school, walking into the federal courthouse uh, to argue this case before a judge, successfully, happily, as it turned out saying that there are extraordinary circumstances when a country is violating human rights, uh, when one might participate in even an overthrow effort if one confines oneself to proportionate means, uh, where one should be treated uh, as a refugee and qualified to seek asylum. And, of course, uh, I also had the opportunity in that brief to Talk about the Declaration of Independence. Right. I wondered if you'd and, dug back. Yeah, into and, 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 and I said, after all, in a country founded by George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and these others, um, this was something that we should think about. And those were revolutionaries who, uh, at the time, I imagine, were thinking about what happens if this doesn't go well. So I, were, you, were you making those kinds of, of framer-based arguments? In your case, I was in part, and yeah, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who famously said, uh, "Well, we should uh, uh, hang together because if we don't, we'll all hang separately." Right, and and he was on trial in Britain. Uh, well, he definitely had his issues with the British government, <laughs> but none, perhaps, compared to what Washington would have faced if he'd been captured. 
You're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, and this week's conversation is with Microsoft President Brad Smith. He began his career battling software piracy, fought the U.S. government's antitrust case against Microsoft, and today runs corporate affairs and legal for the company. Heading into his final year of law school years ago, a magical career-defining connection began for Brad Smith with the personal computer. Uh, in 1984, for reasons that I cannot recall, I suddenly took an interest in these new devices. You know, I started as one often does by reading about them. Were you watching the Super Bowl maybe and saw I don't think so. No, I no. just I just started, you know, I said these are interesting. I bought a couple of PC magazines, started reading about them. Uh, and as I entered my, the third year of law school, I uh, thought, you know, I'll bet I can be better at what I need to do in writing uh, and thinking if I use a computer. And uh, you know, I, one of the, the first software products I bought, I still have the manual, the case to this day, uh, was Microsoft Word version 1.0. Uh, and so I bought it. I taught myself how to use Word. Uh, I worked with our moot court team. Uh, we all used that computer to write our briefs, and I could write faster than I ever had before. Could how edit much better. I don't know if I could time it, but oh my gosh, you know, compared to you know what we would otherwise do, you'd first write on a piece of paper in longhand, and then somebody would go to the typewriter, and then every time you had a typo, you would get out this, you know, the, the, this thing to clean it up. Um, it was just an amazing advance in creativity and productivity. Uh, and once I used it, I was never going to abandon it. And so the year after I graduated, the year I, I left Columbia, uh, I found myself with a, a clerkship in the federal courthouse in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And I found myself carrying a PC into the courthouse so I could use it to do my job. And one other individual did the same thing. This was the, uh, the summer of 1985. I think it's the first time that personal computers uh, entered that courthouse, uh, and, and you know, and then when I applied for a job with a law firm, I got the uh, offer I wanted. And you insisted. I insisted on having a PC on my desk. What were some of the comments that you got? You know, this young lawyer carrying. I mean. PCs weren't exactly portable back then. Well, it's very funny because I think back now and, I, and I'm like, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> the thing I most can't believe is I went out and I got this offer to work at this firm that I most wanted to work at, Covington and Burling, and I can't believe that I actually had the courage to say, this is great, but I'm not going to take the offer unless I can have a computer. That shows how much it meant to me in terms of, frankly, what I thought was my ability to do great work. And But what I heard was, uh, why do you want a computer? Our secretaries have computers. They do the typing. You can do the writing. And uh, and so... It sounds like a reasonable Exactly. Question. That was what every reasonable person at the time would have asked. And, of course, I then explained that I thought I could write and think better if I could type on the computer myself. And before you took that job, when you were still at the court? Yes. What did they say about you? Well... It was actually a wonderful lesson. People thought it was an, uh, an aspect of curiosity. But it was very interesting. Uh, I worked for a judge who was 72 years old at the time mm. and who had mastered, I'll say, paper. Uh, you know, he basically had uh, what you would look 
at and say it was a card catalog of jury instructions. He had files with the notes of all of the cases he had tried. And what I quickly realized, in part because I was not going to be able to run the place, the judge ran the chambers, was that I had to figure out both where I needed to use a computer to do my job better, but not take it too far and try to disrupt processes that worked well for him. Huh. And you did that by? Uh, trial and error. <laughs> I asked and he decided. That's what judges do. But he wasn't bashful and I wasn't bashful in asking, but you know, we quickly figured out where I could use the computer well and where I was not well served to try to use the computer. Covington and Burling, you're this young lawyer who says, I'm thrilled to come, but only if I can bring my computer. And they eventually or immediately say, sure. I think it took a few weeks. I think it actually took more work to get me a computer than to give me a job offer. Okay, so this wasn't, this wasn't I'm bringing my computer. This no. is, I want you to buy me a computer. Well, I would have been happy to bring my own computer. I okay. had one. But either way, I knew I needed to ask for permission. Right. And they basically, uh, not surprisingly, said the issue wasn't the cost. It was more about how people were going to work. It did require a decision by the management committee of the firm. So it actually was a very different decision, if you think about it, from what the decision uh, was that needed to be made by the hiring partner to give me the offer to work there. Right. And how long were you there? Um, I joined in September of 85, and I spent first three years in the D.C. office. I spent four years in the London office. I became a partner there um, in October uh, of 1993, and then I took a, a leave of absence uh, to go join Microsoft shortly afterwards. So during that period of time, the PC goes through quite a few changes. I mean, we're not quite up to Windows 95 by the time you go, but we're, we're at Windows 3.1, I believe, yeah, toward the end right. of that period. So how long does it take to go from, hey, here's this crazy kid, what we would today term a millennial, but this crazy kid yeah. coming in insisting on having a computer, how long does it go, take to go from that to, well, everybody needs to have a computer? Well, it, uh, it really exploded, I would say, in 1990. Um, that's when uh, Windows 3.0 brought the graphical user interface to computing. Obviously, the Apple computers had it, but that made it more mainstream in more offices around the world. Mm -hmm. It made it just easier for people to use computers. And at that point, you quickly started in the industrial world to see computers everywhere. Um, I was incredibly fortunate because I had an opportunity to participate in that because I, my legal work, uh, especially in the four years I was in London, was mostly about helping the young U.S. software industry, including Microsoft, expand into Europe. And that's how you ended up at Microsoft. Yes. I, I, I got to know the people. I did the work uh, for Microsoft and uh, you know, five other big software companies at the time. Um, and... Yeah, I, I really had the chance, as it turned out, to pursue my passion and make it part of my, my legal work. The government's antitrust case against Microsoft centered on the idea that the company had quickly achieved monopoly power in PC operating systems during the early 1990s as Bill Gates and his team sold Windows to practically everyone. That wasn't necessarily a problem until the Mozilla web browser entered the scene and all of a sudden people could access the internet by buying a piece of software. And Microsoft decided to make its own browser, 
bundle it with Windows, and give it away for free. You get to Microsoft just in time for the birth of the web browser. Yeah, I, I arrived in the fall of 93. The browser was really, yes. 94. Coming, yeah, exactly. Mozilla, 94. Yeah. And yeah. that's a big moment in Microsoft history. Yes. The, the most interesting thing in many ways was the way 1995 as a year unfolded. Mm -hmm. Because in August of 1995, Microsoft launched Windows 95. And it was an unprecedented moment in the history of the software industry. It was the first time that people really lined up at stores at midnight to buy a new software product. Mm -hmm. And I'll always remember a paragraph in the USA Today story that covered that um, because there was somebody who said, I lined up at midnight. I don't even have a computer, but I just had to get one because everybody is. <laughs> that was this unbelievable moment for Microsoft at the absolute pinnacle in some ways of just this extraordinary prominence. That was August. By December, everybody was talking about Netscape and the browser and whether Microsoft could catch up. And among many other things, I think it's a testament to how dynamic and fast-changing the IT sector has been for so many years. Now, the browser also became this big sticking point in the antitrust case against Microsoft. Absolutely. It was, was a centerpiece. Yes. Was Microsoft so powerful that it was just wrong for it to build the Internet Explorer browser into the product and, in effect, crush Netscape. When you look back at that period of time, pretty shortly after you had joined right. Microsoft, and the way it changed not only Microsoft, but the entire tech industry. I still talk about Microsoft and the antitrust case probably, you know, on air on CNBC, probably once a month, mm -hmm. maybe once every two, I mean, pretty often. Right. When you look back, what's the legacy of that period of time? I think the legacy is actually um, multifaceted. To me, it stands for a few things above all else. First, you know, frankly, I would still say, from the vantage point of 2017, the law changed. Uh, you know, the lawyers, the people, the executives at Microsoft in the 1990s, you know, got lots of good legal advice before they made the decisions that they made. And if you look at the decisions that the courts made in the 1970s which involved IBM and the mainframe. Mm -hmm. If those courts had decided the Microsoft issues the way they had decided the IBM issues, the verdict would have been that Microsoft was in compliance with the law. So what happened? Well, the computer became ubiquitous. Mm. And I think- So this wasn't about something that had been shoved back in a closet. No, it was not this at was, all. This was no. about something that was on everybody's desks. Yes, and I think one of the lessons is if you change the world, you're going to change the law, <laughs> and you're going to have to live with the law that emerges. And you therefore have to think not only about your responsibility under the law today, but you have to think about where the law is going and where your responsibility is going. And that connects with, to me, another one of the fundamental lessons. Um, it was very jarring for the people at Microsoft at the time, because people looked in the mirror and they saw themselves as individuals that were doing good for the world. Right. But they picked up the Washington Post and they read stories that described themselves as individuals who were different from that. And I think that for anybody who finds oneself on a broader stage, you have to recognize that at the end of the day, 
you have to respond not only to the way you see yourself, you have to respond to the way the world sees you. That's the reality. You can't deny it. How did it change you as a lawyer? Um, it definitely uh, made me more forward-thinking. This notion of it's, it's not about what the law is today. That's the easy thing to figure out. What mm -hmm. we really have to figure out is where's the law going to be in three years because this product's going to be finished in two. It could be very popular in one, and that's what we're going to be grappling with. But the other thing that it, it really taught me was, 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 was two pieces. One is the law sort of defines where your responsibility begins. It does not for a moment define where your responsibility ends. And when you have a position of importance, when you are at a company that's having a broad impact, you have to just take on a very broad sense of, uh, of responsibility and be committed uh, to fulfilling it. I just think that is uh, a necessity. And, and second, it just underscored the critical importance of the ability to communicate broadly with the public. Hmm. Um, you can't win a case, in my view, in a court of law if you can't be effective in the court of public opinion. And David Boies was a master of this, to his credit, and to the Justice Department's credit in the 1990s. He mastered cable television, which was really then you know, bursting into the, to, into the forefront. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it meant that we had to change as well. You, know, you put all those things together. You, you, you put this, this thinking about, well, where's the law going to go? How broadly does our responsibility reach? Uh, how do we communicate in a new era of communications? And what it really speaks to is, it doesn't matter what got you to where you are. You better keep changing. You better keep learning. You better never stop. Uh, sort of what I grew up with, asking questions of other people. Don't get too proud with where you are. Um, I guess we learned that along a number of different vectors in the courts in the 90s. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the court of public opinion was in session... 24-7, it seems like, in retrospect. I think that's right. And you know what we first thought was a fast-moving world in the 90s, we thought it was fast-moving because before cable television, you basically lived in a world where newspapers came out once a day. Mm -hmm. So you had a 24-hour news cycle. And then you suddenly had cable news. And at that time, it was sort of a three- or four-hour news cycle. Right. And then, of course, we moved to Internet time. And we even called it Internet time. Uh, and, you know, and now, with social media, you know, news cycles sometimes last you know, an hour, minutes, uh, you're on to the next thing, sometimes very, very rapidly. Have today's tech companies learned all they should from that period? I mean, when I look at the landscape now, I don't see one towering company that everybody is either in awe of or kind of fears the way it seemed to be with Microsoft in the mid to late 90s. I see a number of huge companies. Microsoft, now still among them, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, could probably throw a couple more in there. Mm. Does that in some ways reduce the legal jeopardy that these companies might find themselves in? Or maybe I should say you companies might find yourselves in. Or, seeing as so many of these are American companies, does it increase the international legal jeopardy. I think there are two things worth noting, and the first is the point you just made. Um, I actually think it's healthy for the world that there are a number of technology leaders, but it is challenging when 
so many of them are American, because then when you're in other parts of the world, there is less reason for people to be proud or even to be confident uh, in these technology providers. So we have to surmount that. But the sec- there's a second dimension that I often find very interesting, because it's not unusual to hear people in the tech sector stand up at a conference and say, you know, we've studied the mistakes that Microsoft made in the 90s, and we're not going to make those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's good. I mean, we've studied them ourselves. <laughs> we're not going to make those mistakes. But everybody makes mistakes. If you think that you're not going to make any mistakes just because you studied one company's mistakes, believe me, you're setting yourself up for a new round of mistakes. And that, to me, speaks to the fundamental importance and even strength of a sense of humility. And I do think that there is oftentimes room to ask whether we, as an industry, as a country, you name it, you know, would benefit from a little more humility. It would probably help us avoid some mistakes. Microsoft president is a huge role. Um, Many people who reach a president or chief operating officer role want to be a CEO at some point or are open to the idea. Uh, Some people who reach that role even run for office at some point. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to keep doing what I am doing now and hopefully do it as well as I can. And I will hopefully be able to do it for some number of years because I want to be able to do it for as long as my boss, Satya Nadella, the CEO and the board of directors, wants me to do it. Um, You know, I I think I'm just incredibly fortunate. Um, I get to work on a company that is involved in so many areas of technology. I get to work uh, for somebody in Satya who I think sort of really embodies, personifies, you know, this this interest in learning and growth and in in humility. Um, You know, we get to apply every day, at least our aspiration to be a responsible corporate citizen. And I get to do it in a world where we can work across borders, Mm. where we can bring people together on our good days. Um, We're well-resourced. We can take on societal challenges, and hopefully we can make a positive contribution. So we can't do everything. Nobody can. No company can. But we're in a position where we can, I think, do some good. Is there a parallel dimension in which a Brad Smith runs for Senate or governor or something? I doubt it. You know, I, I doubt it. Look, if I if that's what I wanted to do, I probably would have and should have done it before. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, you know, I, I think I'm able to do a good deal. One of the things I've learned over the years that I think is valuable for lots of people to think about is you can engage in public service even if you don't work for the public sector. I applaud anybody who runs for office. I applaud people who are public servants who work in the government. But there are lots of opportunities to serve the public without doing that. And, you know, frankly, when so many issues in our country are so incredibly polarized, it's actually sometimes a little easier to work across the aisle when you're not running for office and you're not so closely identified with a single political party. A couple of the issues that first captivated your intellectual imagination, uh, diplomacy, constitutional law, immigration, are at the forefront again. What stirs in you when you see these headlines and what direction do you think America should take? What does it mean to be an American today and ponder those issues? 
Well, I, I think that we have a proud history of some fundamental values. And I hope that will be true to those values. Of course, part of it is the value of individualism. That is a very distinctive and important American characteristic. But I also think it's just so important for us to remember that we're the one country on the planet that actually has a population that reflects the diversity of people on the planet. Diversity has so long been one of our greatest strengths as a country. So many of our greatest people over time in all walks of life have come from other parts of the world. We've been welcoming of them. We've created opportunities for them to belong. You know, we've had a strained and, and stained history in some respects when it comes to diversity, when we think about the history and legacy of slavery and so many other forms of prejudice and bigotry. But we've on, been on a steady path to try to overcome them. And as we've taken each step, I believe it has made the country better. And so I think that's the, the lesson for the country. It's the lesson that we apply as a company. Um, you know, at Microsoft, we're really focused on trying to navigate the political thickets here and around the world by recognizing that we need to be trusted globally in the United States and everywhere else. We need to make a contribution locally, you know, whether we're talking about rural America or urban America or anywhere else. Mm. But we've also said there are a few values that we're going to stand up for consistently. And they're rooted in what I would describe as a respect for other people and a commitment to diversity and inclusion. And that, and in the United States, that does mean we'll consistently stand up for what I would call a healthy immigration system, uh, the rights of people in the LGBTQ community, some important progress that needs to be made on issues like race and criminal justice. And we appreciate that there will be people, including our customers, who won't always agree with us. But when we put that combination together, it is who we are. Well, I think that's a great note to close on. I know you got a flight to catch. Uh, thank you for sitting down with me here in Aspen at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Brad Smith, president over at Microsoft. Thank you, John. My thanks to Brad Smith. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Next up on the podcast, Jason Calacanis is a smart, loudmouthed, opinionated angel investor. And he just wrote a book, Angel, How to Invest in Technology Startups, Timeless Advice from an Angel Investor Who Turned $100,000 into $100 million. I, I don't know if that's the sort of thing you can teach, but if so, we're going to find out. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, YouTube. I'm taking your comments and questions usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. That's how these things grow, these conversations, uh, in-depth takes on people that you don't tend to get out there other places. And also drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.